Grab a Bible, you're going to need it, and turn to or scroll to, however you're going to do it, uh, Matthew. And it's the first book of the New Testament, so you're all the way over here in the back half of the book, back third of the book, I guess. And um, we have been going through the story of God and following along from the beginning of the whole book, actually from before the book. We started at the very beginning of creation, before creation, who's the God before creation. That was over a year and a half ago. Maggie, it's been a while. I know we've been going through it. So, uh, but we haven't hit every word that the book has to say, but we've started just following the story of God throughout really creation, but his book. So who was God before creation? And then he created all things. He created Adam and Eve, who he created perfect in a perfect place uh, to be part of his kingdom. But Adam and Eve chose instead to have a kingdom of their own. And in doing so, God said, you can choose that life. You could choose sin. But if you choose that, death enters the world. And they chose that. And sure enough, death entered the world. But in that moment, God made a promise to Eve that a child from her own body would destroy the works of the devil, would right the wrong, would would bring salvation, redemption, restoration to creation. All the way back in the third chapter of the whole Bible. And from that point forward, we've been following that seed, looking for that person uh, throughout history. And I'm not going through it all right now, but in a quick flash, that seed passed from her, her children to her children to her children until society and the world at the time became uh, such a wicked place that God erased it through a flood. But at the same time, he preserved a family and that seed, that promise continued through who? Who was the family? Family of Noah, right. So that seed continued through Noah and Noah's descendants. And God moved it on down. And your Bible tells you all of this. And it came down till God identified a person named Abraham. And he called Abraham and he said, Abraham, this seed is going to come through you. And I'm going to give you a land and a place and a people and a nation from your own family. And Abraham had a, a miraculous son. It shouldn't have been born, but he had a son in a miraculous way. Uh, and that son was Isaac. And then Isaac had son in a miracle way too, really, but in a miracle way. And Jacob, and Jacob's name was changed to Israel, right? And then Israel had 12 sons, and those 12 sons had tons of children until they grew into these this massive family that was made up of these 12 sons' families. So you have 12 tribes, one nation, Israel, but one family in the grand scheme of things. All right. And then, but God is still working through this promise of a person, of a seed of Eve. Uh, and so that family begins to become the focus of your Bible. All of that is in Genesis. So by the time you come to Exodus now, those people are in bondage, but God sends somebody to bring them out of bondage in Egypt. Who did he send? Moses, right. So Moses brings them out, leads them into the desert. God meets them in the desert. He gives them his word. He gives them his laws. He talks to them. He speaks to them. And then he leads them into the land that he promised to Abraham for them to have. There's more drama in here. I'm giving you the flyover. And they end up in that land. But then they begin this cycle of 
Repenting and sinning and repenting and sinning and returning to other gods and then turning back to God and turning to other gods and turning back to God, which ironically is the way most of us live our lives, too, unfortunately. Uh, but God raises up these judges and these kings and these different people to lead and guide them. Uh, all along, we're still looking for who is this seed. Years and years and years go by. The people keep this cycle up. God finally has it. Has had enough. In 722 B.C., he removes half of the nation of Israel at the hand of Syria. Assyria, excuse me. And then in 586 B.C., historical, you can look them all up. Babylon removes the other half. And they're in exile. And we're scattered. But after 70 years, God brings them back. And he brings them back to the land. And the, can you imagine how exhausted the people Where is this promised person? Uh, and they come back and they get right back into the same cycle again of sin and repent and sin and repent and sin and repent. So God goes silent for 400 years. No talk. No, no prophets. No word from God. Nothing for 400 years. And all of a sudden, there's a star in the sky over Bethlehem. All of a sudden, there is a baby born to a virgin. And God has provided that promise. And as you know, or if you don't now, you do, it's Jesus. And this boy grows up into a man, and he does all kinds of miracles. He perform, he raises the dead. He does just countless miracles proving who he is. Greatest of all is he forgives sin. Only God can do that. And this person is clearly identified as that deliverer, but the people push back, particularly the religious leaders push back, and ultimately he's crucified. And then he's buried in a grave. For three days. And then he gets out of that grave. We talked about that last week. And he is alive. Alright. That's where our story's at. So he's been alive and he's been appearing now to about four, over 40 days of time. And during that time he's talked to his disciples. We've talked about it already. And now we come to this point where he is going to leave. Now, if you're a disciple, you're like, what do you mean you're going to leave? What are you talking about? You just beat death. It's party time. Like, let's roll a throne out here. <laughs> Make everybody take a knee. Like, let's get you a big sword. You're the boss now. What do you mean you're going to leave? Um, that brings us where we are. Matthew 28. If you're not there, you're in Matthew 28. Last little section of Matthew. Uh, and the title that I have this for is, Are You Called by God? Now, we had over the summer, you all know this, we had about 10 uh, college students that spent the whole summer with us. This is the first, second week that they've been gone. Uh, so, but they helped lead worship and all that throughout the summer and all that kind of thing. That was one question they kept asking. How do you know if you're called by God? How do you know if God's calling you? I was like, well, I can tell you. He told me to tell you you're supposed to be in Arizona. So pack your stuff and move. No, I'm kidding. But, but they kept asking that. So today I'm going to tell you. If you're a Christian, if you're a believer, if your faith is in Christ, I'm going to answer that question for you today. For a fact, the Bible is crystal clear. You are. Yes. The answer is yes. You're called to make disciples. Before you blow that off, it's your responsibility. It's not mine. I mean, it's mine too. But it's not mine to do it as a pastor, it's your 
responsibility to do it. Jesus has made eternal life possible. He's conquered death. But then he's entrusted making disciples to his disciples in order that they would carry that hope to the world. I mean, think about that a minute. It's been entrusted to you. If you're wondering about something specific now, am I called to be a pastor? Am I called to be a missionary? Am I called to be a worship leader? Am I called to, 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 to move overseas? Or am I called to, if that's what you're wondering, then my first question is, are you making disciples already? Are you already doing it? Because that's the one thing we're all called to do. So that's the first question. Are you doing that? Uh, I remember, I think I've shared this with some of y'all before, but I remember the first time I went on a mission trip and I went to um, Ukraine. And I will never forget... 20-something hours of travel between airlines and buses and a train and cars and everything else to finally get to where this little church was that we were going to go in. And it was dark, and it was freezing cold, snow on the ground, and we were near the Russian border in the far east of Ukraine. And as we were walking up to the building, little bitty building, about half the size of the one we're in now, I could hear... Singing, because we were a little bit late. I could hear singing. They'd already started. And I, I don't know what they were saying. They were speaking Russian, so I don't know what they were saying. But I could, I recognized the tune. And the closer I got, I was like, I mean, I know that song. It was that hymn, How Great Thou Art. You know? And, and I started hearing, I was like, oh man, I know that song. And it, I realized all of a sudden, the gospel's already here. Like, these people already know Jesus. Like, I, my whole mindset had to change. I didn't come here to rescue these poor Ukrainians from their sins and tell them the gospel about Jesus. I came to help them disciple their own people, to make disciples their own people. How in the world had it already gotten there? How did it get there without me? A, 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 somebody, a disciple along the way came to that community and started making disciples in that community when i don't who it's not about them so it really don't matter does it really not about them and the beauty is that because of what's occurred there no matter if war like is currently going on no matter if war or famine or whatever may come to that land there's always going to be somebody there that's able to continue to pick that back up and make disciples and and carry it on and entrust it forward so if you're a disciple of christ today and you're saved by the gospel then it's on you i don't know how else to put it that's what the bible says it's on you it's been entrusted to you and here's your kind of one point real easy one it's more or less what I just said. It's on the sheet. But if you're a disciple of Christ and it's entrusted to you to make disciples, I, I think that seems like something we probably, if you've been in church for a while, are familiar with. But I don't think we really understand the weight of it. I don't think we really own it like what it means. It, it's on you. So what goes into it? What's the responsibility entail? Look at Matthew 28, verse 18. And Jesus came to his disciples. This is right before he's he's taken off. And he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, because I have all authority, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. All. 
I don't know how long it would take you to teach all that Jesus has taught you. Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So, is this about preaching? Is that what he means? Is this about missionaries? Go, right? Is this about evangelism? Preach the gospel? Is that what he means? I mean, this is a, com- this is a command. It'd be very, pretty important to understand what he's telling us to do, right? It matters. I remember, never forget, I remember a guy at a CR, Celebrate Recovery. I used to be in charge of that in Tennessee for a big church there. And I'll never forget this country rock star, I'll call him that, uh, came to do a, like a concert night and gospel call thing for CR. And I have met this guy once before. He's done several records. He, you, may, you may have heard of him if I said who he was. But in any event, I saw him in the parking lot. I was like, how are you doing, man? He's like, I'm doing good. And I said, what you been doing? And he said, man, I've been preaching everywhere. I was like, how's that going? He said, well, I just keep winning them. And y'all keep clean. I keep catching them and y'all keep cleaning them. That's what he was talking about, like fish. You know, I keep catching them and y'all keep cleaning them. Talking about y'all being the church. And I was like, really, is that how that works? <laughs> is that how that's supposed to go? Look, Jesus in this text here, he's not teaching. He's commissioning. You understand the difference? Like this is not, he's not sitting down and saying, open your Bibles and turn to page or whatever. He's not teaching here. He's commissioning. He's giving a charge to his disciples to make disciples of all nations. Can you imagine how overwhelming that must have been to hear? All nations. That's overwhelming for us. And we can be pretty much anywhere in a handful of hours. Imagine them. All nations. And sharing the gospel is just the beginning. I always heard go is the command here. Go to all the nations. Growing up in church before my drug years and all that. That's what I used to always hear. You got to go or, or as you're going. You know, like it's a casual thing. Just do it on the side. But you know what the word imperative is? An imperative in English. So you know you're coming to church and you're going to get school today. Uh, an imperative is a command. So in the original language, in the Greek here, there's only one imperative in this sentence. And it's make disciples. That's the command. The only one here is to make disciples. So the going, the baptizing, you see it there. The teaching, those are actually clauses that support the command to make disciples. So what's the point? The point is this. Going, you call that evangelism? I'm going to go next door and share the gospel. I'm going to go to school and share the gospel. I'm going to go to work and share the gospel. I'm going to go to the grocery store and share the gospel. That, that would be going, sure. But that's only one aspect. That's only one. Baptizing. Again, that doesn't complete the task. We did baptisms last week, right? Uh, right out the window over there. Coach Bradford gets baptized. All right. But that, that is only one aspect that identifies that Jim Bradford is a disciple of Christ. That's what that identifies. But that doesn't make disciples. Teaching is the other one. All that Jesus taught. All that he taught. I I can't even, all. You know, scripture, sure. 
life on life? What do you think it was like to live with him? Walk everywhere he walked, go everywhere he went, eat whatever he ate, you know, hang out with him. It was more than just sitting down and memorizing scripture. But on the other hand, too often today, today, too often, or this time period, too often, we push all the way back and we say we hate, like, discipleship has been turned into this classroom thing where discipleship is about either completing a workbook in order to then get certified or get a star by my name, uh, or it is this classroom thing that we're doing that is this Bible study or a work through or something like that. And so because of that, in today's world, it's like the idea of discipleship. People have pushed so far back, the pendulum swung all the way the other way, and now everybody says it's about life on life. It's about life on life, and it is. But is making disciples about bowling? You know, is it about top golf? Is it about going to a movie together? Going on a hike? You know, it can be. I'm not taking those things away. That's part of your life. So it, it, it certainly can be. Those things may occur, but they can't be the focus of making disciples. The focus of making disciples centers around one thing, the Word of God. If if it's not centered around the Word of God, it could be a lot of fun things, but it's not making disciples. Making friends. You know what I'm saying? It can be all kinds of things, but it's not making disciples. I had a friend that was a big, or not a friend, a mentor more, that was a big impact on my life. And I remember going fishing with him a lot. and Or all kinds of things. Going for drives, going different places, but I remember going fishing. But that dude never stopped talking about the Bible. Like, ever. And it never got annoying. Like, he might talk about LSU football or something for a second or two. But then it would turn right back over some way to something Bible-related. And that's the kind of idea. Like, it was always on the subject of conversations. Let me show you something. Look at Luke 24. I think it'll be up here on screens. But verse 13. So this is right after Jesus rose from the dead. This is uh, just before he appeared to his disciples. We talked about that last week in the room. So this is just after the same day he's risen from the dead, and this is right after the women have said, hey, he's alive. In verse 13, that same day, two of them, two disciples, were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. So all this resurrection, everything happened in Jerusalem. So these dudes, two of Jesus' disciples, are walking to Emmaus from Jerusalem, seven miles, not a long way. And they were talking with each other about all the things that had happened. And it goes on to tell you that Jesus shows up and right among them, but they don't know who he is. Uh, he's kind of kept his kept them from recognizing him. And he asks, hey, what's going on? And they're like, how do you not know what's going on? Like, And they explain who Jesus is and the crucifixion and word has it he's alive. You know, all that kind of thing. Look at verse 24. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But Jesus, him they did not see. And Jesus said to these two, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. You see what he said there? He didn't say all that I once said, although he could have. He said what the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Necessary. You see what he's saying? He's saying the prophets, that would be the Bible, the word, 
said these things were going to happen. So it was necessary that he did what he had to do, that he had to suffer and do these things. Do you understand what that's saying? That's saying that even Jesus, and I know he's God, and I know it's his word, but even Jesus submitted to the word of God. I think the word said this was going to happen, and Jesus said so it had to happen. It had to happen. Look what else he says, verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets. That would be all this big thick part over here, right? The book. Beginning with Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Job, and then all the prophets all the way through. He interpreted to them in all the scriptures, Psalms, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, all of them, the things concerning what? Himself. Him. I'm not going to take the time to do this right now, because in a sense, that's what we've been doing for a year and a half. But Jesus takes the Bible, and he goes back to Genesis, and he says, hey, when Adam and Eve heard the sound of God walking in the garden, that was my feet. You know what I'm saying? When he walks on through, when he when, and he goes straight through the Bible from end to end. When when the two angels and God came to Abraham to tell him that he was going to have a son, that was me with the two angels. I mean, he walks straight back through and he points all that. When Isaiah in chapter 53 saw a suffering servant who would be wounded for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities upon him, that was chastisement that brought us peace. That was me. Like he's pointing all this out. Do you not see that that's the cross? Do you not see that all the way through? From one side, why didn't Jesus just go, yo, homie, it's me. Finger, hands right here. That's what he did for Thomas. Why didn't he do that? Yo, man, I'm alive. Why didn't he do that? Not only that, look what else he says. I love him, verse 32, because he ends up, he stays with them for a while for dinner. And then suddenly their eyes are open, and then he's, he's gone from them. And in verse 32, they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened up to us the scripture? See what he's saying? He's like, these two dudes are like, man, was it not awesome hearing him walk back through the word? Wasn't that crazy? Like they are lit up. Their heart, I love it. They say our hearts are on fire. Like not because we're filled with the Holy Spirit, not because we're overwhelmed because Jesus is alive, not because of that, because the scripture, like all of a sudden they're connecting the dots. How's that? Wait a minute. That's been there the whole time. I didn't see it. Like, wait a second. Like how, how did that, he said, how, and like they're pulling it all together and they're just getting super excited and like overwhelmed with joy. That should come in discipleship later in Acts chapter 2. So after Jesus rises from the grave, we'll look at this uh, next week. In Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches the gospel by quoting numerous scriptures and explaining their meaning while pointing to Jesus and the gospel through them. And then he says in Acts chapter 2 verse 41, as a result of that, those who received his word were baptized. Now, Jesus has just left, and the Holy Spirit has just arrived. He's preached, and this has happened. Those who received his word were baptized, and those who were added that day, about 3,000 souls 
3,000. And they, they, if it stopped right there, we'd go right on. Go preach the gospel. Doesn't stop there. Doesn't stop there. And, and, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Peter didn't go, okay, now you're saved. Awesome. Great. Go out there and tell everybody Jesus is actually the Messiah. He didn't do that. He also didn't say, before you go, sit down in that chair and let me tell you what you need to know. They sat down in the chair and they said, Peter, tell us, teach us, show us, give it to us. We want it. Like, give it to us. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and, yes, the fellowship, the breaking of bread and what? Prayers. And then awe came on every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through these apostles. It's like this sense of, man, there's something new and crazy. It's a birth of a church. And how awesome everything that's happening is in this moment. Verse 44, and all who believed were together. They had all things in common, They were, which means they were just like-minded. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds, proceeds to all as any had need. Now, really quick, this is not a commune, like a hippie commune, as a lot of people have tried to turn it into. There are churches, especially in the mid or the northwest, leave it at that, that have tried to make a model out of this and have created a commune. All it's saying is sacrifice. Notice the last four words in that sentence. As any had need. It didn't say nobody had anything. It just said they took care of each other's needs. And listen, if you're here today and you got a need and you tell me this church is going to do everything we can to help you through that, we're going to. All right? That's the point. It's, it's about sacrifice, not about have nothing. Big difference. Verse 46. And... If it stopped there again, we'd have this cute little commune, but and day by day attending the temple together. So everybody thinks, well, the church started and they cut the Jews off and the heck with the temple and all that. Nope, this is a Jewish church, the first church, because everybody in it is a Jew. And they're going to a Jewish temple to pray. Why do you think they kept doing that? That temple was a gift from God. Yeah, there was a lot of bad things that started going on there. Yeah, there was a lot of things there that they were wrong. Yes, God is changing the program. There has now been one sacrifice, Jesus, and there's no need for sacrifice anymore. But it's still a house of prayer, right? It's still a place of worship, right? Why would you not gather there? Why would you not go there? And the breaking of bread in their homes... So they have the temple where they go to pray and their homes where they share food. They receive their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God, having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number every single day, people being saved. Again, don't just turn this into making hippies. This is not about whatever appears to be peace, love, and happiness by the world's standards. Don't forget, all of these apostles died bad. I'm not saying they were bad. I'm saying they died bad by what we would call bad. They all became martyrs. They, they, they were all martyred for their faith, for doing this. Acts 1.8, Jesus told them ahead of time, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. That word witness is the word martyr. 
the exact word in Greek, martyr. You'll be my martyr in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You understand what he's saying? He's saying that you're not just going to go preach. Your death is going to prove true this faith. It's, it's, it's literally saying that your witness of who I am is going to be proven through your death. Think about that. Like, I'm not trying to be like dark, but that's what he's saying. If your death, if your death can prove that Jesus is who he says he is, man, what about your life? Like, your life should be easy if even your death can prove who he is. He said, you're going to be my witnesses. And what we've just read and what we'll look at next week is the birth of the church. The disciples, their natural result of making disciples was the church being planted. That's the natural result of it. They gather these people. They begin to teach them because the people devote themselves to being taught. As that happens, God pushes more people towards them and more people towards them. And they're having to teach more and equip more. They're sharing food. They're meeting needs, but they're teaching. And the disciples gather together all these people. They go to the temple to worship and pray. They gather to grow in their faith. We call that church. They gather to worship and to grow in their faith. And then the church exists full of disciples in order to disciple each other. And then those disciples are deployed by the church to go to all nations, which includes Arizona and, the, you know, the res over there, all nations. It also includes China and Japan and wherever else. And then in those places where those disciples find themselves and begin to make disciples, they gather and they worship. And we have another church. That's the way it happens. Multiplying disciples led to the birth of the church. And it remains the sole mission of the church today. And it's been lost in a lot of churches. What, you ever ask yourself that? We'll talk about this later. But you ever ask yourself, what is the purpose of the church? What is the mission of the church? So when I say it like that, then you think, well, what's Salt River's mission statement? What's this church's mission statement? What's this church's mission statement? If they're all God's church, shouldn't they all have one mission? Aren't we all the same body? Different community, different people, different locations, different strategy maybe. But one mission, right? There's there's only one mission. That's the one he gave, make disciples. And listen, it's been entrusted to you. If you're a believer in the room, if you're a disciple, it's been entrusted to you. Second Timothy 2, 2, almost done here. Second Timothy 2, 2, Paul said to Timothy, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men, women, who will be able to entrust, uh, be able to teach others also. You see what he's saying? What you have heard from me, spit it out to everybody who wants to hear it. Not what he said, is it? What you've heard from me, what? In the presence of many witnesses, entrust. What does it mean to entrust? That's a big word. You got a newborn baby? 
You need a break? Got to go to the bathroom, take that little baby, you set that newborn baby in somebody's arms, and then you walk away from it? You just entrusted that baby to somebody. Doesn't what, what Paul's talking about here is not just blasting something, not me up here preaching every week. It's not a Bethmore Bible study for women. It's not a, 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 a you know, Wild game dinner for men. It's not, it's not that. It's, in, it's something special. It's something precious. It's something that Jesus said, all I've taught you, entrust it to somebody else. And he defines who that somebody is. Faithful people. People who say, I'll take that. I want that. And then they'll go and they'll make disciples also. That's what it says. Y'all know I'm a, uh, 100% American, but Irish heritage, of course. And I love Irish history. If you've been to my house, you've seen i got a whole bookshelf full of Irish history books, and I've read most of them, if not all of them. So I love Irish history. I don't know why, but uh, I've been obsessed with it since, I don't know, since I was a teenager. But there is a great, and I know it sounds like I'm just hyping Ireland, but it is a really good historical book called How the Irish Saved Civilization. And if you haven't read it, you should check it out. It's small. But the reason I'm saying that is you may be like, I don't care about the Irish. I got that. But what's cool about it is it, it has a great picture of history and particular disciple making. Now, Thomas Cahill, who wrote it, it's not a Christian book. He's a historian. He's not writing it as a Christian book. But one of the points that's made in this that's amazing is during the Middle Ages, when everybody was burning books, by this point in time, the gospel had spread through from these disciples. It had spread through England and Europe, uh, uh, Germany and kind of that area and had but but loosely just been scattered and ended up over towards the direction of Ireland in a scattered little pockets here and there. And then the Middle Ages came. And education was all but banned, and they start burning books and all that stuff. And Bibles are becoming extinct along with other books. And they started this little group in in Eastern Ireland over towards the coast where they started these little hovels. Like they'd build these, and I've seen some of these. I've been there and seen what the remains of them. And they were like little um, stone uh, domes. And uh, they'd get six, eight, twelve guys in there, and they'd start a fire where they could see, and they'd just start in the in the almost dark, hand copying the Bible, and each one of them doing their own little hand copy of the Bible for generations, as the Middle Ages went. That turned into monasteries, but in the beginning, that's what it was. And as soon as the Middle Ages were over, as soon as it became Safe, I guess, as soon as the darkness started to lift, these same people took their copies and went back the same direction that it came to them from, carrying it back into the same areas of Europe where it had come from centuries later. And that's just a small piece of how you have it today. And now it's in your hand again. The same word is entrusted to you. What you going to do with it? What you going to do with it? Entrusted. So when we go, if it's across the street, I don't care. When we go, when we're baptizing, 
when we are teaching these things here, what, what goes into making a disciple, then the natural result is those people become hungry to do the same thing. And it repeats, they make disciples by going and baptizing and teaching. Luke 6.40, Jesus said, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he's fully trained, will be like his teacher. Um, Thomas Lancaster said, it's historian and believer, said, after the disciple was fully trained, he became the teacher and passed on the teaching to disciples of his own, who then, fully trained, became teachers and raised up disciples of their own. Do you see the picture here? It's on you. And it's on me. What guarantee do they possibly have that this is going to work? Well, Jesus bookended that. Back in Matthew 28, if you're still there, he started by saying in verse 18, all authority is given to me. So go. Go, therefore. All authority is given. I'm the boss, guys. If I'm telling you to go and do this and I'm the boss, it's going to work. And then he ends it by saying, and lo, I am with you always. How can you lose? Well, what if I don't know what to say? What if I don't know how to teach? What if I don't have answers? Go find them. Or don't have an answer. There are plenty of things I don't have an answer to right now. That's okay. There's a lot of things I know. I'll give you that. You know? Let me show you a picture here, and we'll close out. Well, I've got a couple of things to show you, and I'm done. This is... Uh, a picture, and you can see I look crazy with a little bit of hair. I was about to go to Africa, and they told me I had to grow my hair out a little bit. Um, but the guy on the far right, David Platt, some of y'all may know him. Uh, he's a pretty big name nowadays, but he discipled that big dude, Robbie, who was a former drug addict and everything else who became a pastor. Uh, so David Platt on the far right discipled him personally for years. I met that man. That was in Louisiana. I met that man, Robbie, in Chattanooga, Tennessee. That man, Robbie, discipled me for a couple of years. Uh, then I discipled the guy, Joey, with the shaved head right there. I discipled him for a period of time, about a year, year and a half. And then he discipled Brandon, the other guy, for about a year, year and a half. And that's as far as I could get pictures of we just all happened to be there on one particular day i was like wow we're all here let's get a picture of this so it's cool it's a good visual the guy on the far right just met a dude and said hey could i invest in you would you like to learn and little did he know he created a a doctorate degree in expository preaching in this man and then he handed it down and handed it down and now i'm standing here in arizona with y'all And I meet with a couple of guys, even still. It's never going to change. I'll do it for the rest of my life. That's the picture of what it what it looks like. So what do you need to do? Well, maybe you need to get in a group. Maybe you need to get a brother. Maybe it's one. Hey, I need to get a guy. Maybe it's easier if it's a couple. Women, easier if it's a couple of women. It's easier if it's women on women and men on men, only because then you can be more personal. You can be more open. Men are not going to typically be open with women present. Women are not going to typically be open with men present. So it's more helpful to do it that way where you can be personal and real. Maybe you need to begin leading a group. Maybe you're like, hey, I got enough I could give away. Let me get some dudes and see who wants to meet up and, 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 and I'll give it away. I'll give you what I got. 
You don't have to know everything. You don't got to have a degree. You just have to say, hey, can we get together and work through this thing? Can there be a place where I can come talk and ask questions and we can study or, or whatnot? Um, this is the way the loop looks for us, and I'm done with this. This is the way it looks. So you want to know how to get plugged in. You're going to see, you'll be seeing more of this if you haven't seen it before. But it's on the end of every sheet. Engage. Real simple. Hey, ask somebody. Find somebody. Hey, can you, can you want to meet with me? This don't have to be about our church. I don't care where they go to church. I don't care if they go to church. They need to be a believer because they need to know what you're talking about. But they could just be a new believer. It doesn't matter. Get somebody. Make the effort intentionally to ask somebody to be with you. And then equip. Equip each other, not them. You're not just feeding them a toolkit. You're doing it together. Like you're working through the word together. You're growing together. You're iron sharpened iron. Like you're equipping each other for a reason. And this is what makes it different than a Bible study. This is what separates it from everything else. And this is what we just read today. Jesus is leaving. I'm with you always, but it's on you. So what makes discipleship different from a Bible study, different from this Sunday morning service, different from a a Sunday school class or a small group, is the fact that at some point, I'm with you always, but it's on you now. You entrust it to them and you say, all right, now you go do the same. And I'm going to find some others and do it again. That's the picture of discipleship. That was the plan. But it all starts with Jesus. And do you know him? Do you really know him? Can't make a disciple of somebody you don't know. Do you really know him? If you guys want to stand up with me, and we're going to uh, do one more song. And I, I'm going to ask you to kind of close your eyes for a minute, not trying to be dramatic or anything, but just in order to focus a minute. Um, Deidre's going to come up. They're going to come up. We're just going to sing one more song. But, but I want you to take a second with me. And just, you know, it's just you for a minute, you and the Lord, and just process what we've been talking about. I think it's good to shut your eyes a second. You've been looking at the screen. You've been looking at the word. You've been looking at me. Uh, maybe you've been looking at your feet. I don't know. But l- l- close your eyes just a second and, and just focus on what's been said. Do you know him, first of all? Do you understand that he is who he says he is? Do you understand that he did come, he did live, and he did most certainly die on that cross? I don't think history even argues with that anymore because it's so prevalently obvious all over the world. He did die on that cross. But then comes the real question. Do you believe he's alive? Not a ghost, not a spirit floating around. That he came back, took the body that was crucified, and breathed life back into it. That he is alive. That death has no grip on him. No ability to hold him, ever. And if you can trust in that. If you can trust in that. If you can put your faith in that. That's what it means to become a disciple. To start a path of saying, Jesus, I, I can't beat death. I know I can't. I have no hope of beating death. And I know death is coming because I know I'm a sinner. I know I sin. I know I mess up. I know I screw up. I know I, nobody got to tell me I know. And I know I can't beat death. 
But you did. The death that was promised to Adam and Eve, the death that I've inherited by being one of their children. Lord, you came, you defeated it, it's conquered, it's done. And I won't put my faith in myself, but I'll put my faith in you. I trust you that you won't leave me there. Can you do that? If you can do that, do it. Tell him, say it however you want to. And then you're starting a path of saying, Lord, teach me. Lord, I love you, and I thank you for the privilege of your word. It is awesome to have it. It's awesome to hold it, to know it, to read it. And and the amazing thing that we're entrusted with it. Like, I, I know I'm pushing it like it's a a responsibility, and it is, but it's not a burden. Man, what a crazy thing that the God of all creation would entrust us with what he has to say. That we would have the privilege of telling other people who you are. Showing them who you are. That we also get to learn more and more and more about who you are because of the time we spend with other people who know you. And Lord, thank you for modeling that for us. Lord, I pray today as we finish up that you know that we love you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.